The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I am your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Lots of guests this morning. Uh, my first guests coming up now are Gerald Nissenbaum, a lawyer, an attorney, J.D., and John Sedgwick, another uh, they've written a book called Sex, Love, and Money, Revenge and Ruin in the World of High-Stakes Divorce. Um, Gerald has been a practicing trial, trial law, uh, lawyer and family law attorney since 1967, named one of the best lawyers in America by town and country. So he's had lots of experience. John Sedgwick is the critically acclaimed author of two novels, three works of narrative nonfiction, and most recently, a multi-generational family memoir. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. It's nice to be here. As I said, I think I said it before we started the show, but I mean, your book is a page-turner. For anybody who's been divorced, contemplating divorce, or just simply wants to... He wants a, Avoid a good, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay, sex, love, and money. Is that what's involved in divorce? Is that hence the title, right? It's, is that it? Is that what we're all motivated by? I think well, that uh, the sex um, and love and money are the kinds of things that get people married in the first place. And uh, if it doesn't work out, then certainly sex, love, and money, or perhaps more accurately, no sex, no love, and all money is what happens at the time of divorce. So you've been doing this for 40 years, and you've got stories that people are going to, when you, before you read this book, uh, it, it's sort of like uh, you can't believe that people would act this way with one another. I mean, that, they, that these, these stories almost, they're, uh, you know, you can watch CSI, you can watch uh, uh, The Practice. I think these are even more, I don't know what you, what we, I mean, they're more over the top. Well, John came up with the phrase, which I think is accurate, which is they're the kind of stories that, that make fiction look, uh, look mild. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, uh, look what, John, I forget the fact. Uh, it, it makes the fiction jealous. Right. Um, so, it, it, yeah, tell us, I want to, so Gerald, how did you get into this? Way. I mean, you started out not becoming, not a divorce attorney. And by the way, as you say in the book, so I guess I can say it on the air, you charge, what, $700 an hour? Yes. At the moment. At, <laughs> and the price <laughs> is going up? <laughs> Well, I started off at at, um, at thirty five bucks an hour, which was in 1967, and at that time I didn't know much. I'm not sure I know much more now, but and I'm not even saying I'm worth seven hundred. It is what people pay me, and I don't want them to be, you know, to be sad about it. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not. So, and oftentimes people, you know, they come and they ask me a lot of stuff, and I suggest that they they maybe should talk with their therapist because a lot of of what we do is often not legal. The law is often pretty straightforward in the cases, but the clients come with a really a lot of baggage, which um, they need a caring therapist to help them through this. And 
we're very diligent about trying to get people in to or make sure they stay in therapy during this process. They really need uh, a therapist where there's, there's no judgment by the therapist and they can talk things out and try and figure things out. Um, and oftentimes that therapy will continue for several years after the divorce, particularly when things have been horrific. What, what would, let's describe some of the cases, a couple of the cases anyway. Uh, John, tell us which case to you stands out. Well, the, the two of the longer ones are um, really striking to me. One was about a, a hooker who hooked up with a millionaire, and they uh, um, came to marry, and then she decided that what she really wanted to do was to kill him and take the, um, her inheritance and the rest of his estate um, as well. And the, this is a plot that was hatched in, the, in prison where she'd been sent for her um, sexual indiscretions and uh, um, that, that she uh, met a, fellow, a lesbian there who, <laughs> incredibly to me, um, ended up working in the house of this married couple, the hooker that she knew and the millionaire that she married, that she was working there as a maid. And the two of them conspired to knock the millionaire down the stairs uh, um, in order to kill him. And if that fail, failed, they were going to shoot him up full of, um, uh, um, of uh, Prozac in order to cause him to, I don't know, explode or something. And you just can't make this stuff up. That's, that's the thing that is, was so staggering to me as the that writer was quite of this, a, this Wasn't this the one that you described as that, um, the North Shore Madam? Madam, that's right. The North Shore yes. Madam? Yes. And you always wonder, or I wondered as I'm reading the story, how men can be so vulnerable. Now, I realize he was quite a bit older than she, wasn't he, like 15 yes, years? Yes, was, he was much older. And, you know, from his side, he wanted a little comfort. Um, from her side, she wanted a little money, or more than a little. And that was the exchange. Unfortunately, she went to a felonious extreme. I have, a, I have another story, and, I, you know, we've got to let the readers that buy the book and read it, but... Uh, so we don't want to get too detailed, but I have to ask both of you, because this story baffled me. Um, there was the story about the, the, the woman, the young woman, who got the guy, I don't know whether they were at a party, whatever, she got him to go into a room with her, she got a condom, she you know, got him aroused, put the condom on, and I guess it gave him oral sex, then he was satisfied, then she took the sperm, Kept put it in the condom, took it home, injected herself with a turkey baster, became pregnant, and then you can tell the rest of the story because the outcome really shocked me. Well, this is, uh, Catherine, this is what Carol, I call, yeah. and I hope this phrase will be okay, the strict liability of sperm. Yeah, that's okay. We're on the Internet, so you can say whatever you want. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's as bad as I'm going to get. Okay, but good. The point is that if a guy um, lets his sperm out, so to speak, and a woman gets pregnant, then that guy is probably going to pay child support. And in this case, the guy permitted himself to have sex. She impregnated herself. Uh, nine months later, she had a baby. It looked just like him. DNA matched up. And, you know, that's when he came to see me about trying to figure out what to do. And the fact of the matter is, between the guy's pocketbook and the pocketbook of the state or, or commonwealth in which somebody lives, they're going to pick the guy over the state's pocketbook. Sir, you got her pregnant, you're going to pay child support. And what I try to do, and, and a lot of guys don't appreciate this too much, is to say, look, you have this child, so 
So you have two choices here. You can pay the money and, and have no relationship with the child, and you'll never know what happens to your kid. Or you can pay the money, and you can become active in the child's life. You can become a real dad. You can really become involved in this. And, and some people take that advice, and other people, it's as if, you know, I hit them in the face with, uh, with a punch, and they get very angry with me. That's not what I want. I just don't want to pay. I want to go away. I said, well, you know, I think you should have thought about that before you, t- you did what you did. But in this case, isn't it a little different, Gerald? I mean, the fact that she, to me, it seems like she stole his sperm. I mean, she stole it from him. He didn't necessarily give her permission to impregnate herself. The implication was when she put on a condom that, and they didn't, I guess they didn't have intercourse. This fascinates me that he really wasn't acquiescing to having Well, I absolutely agree. It's, 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 uh, it's, it is uh, it is sperm. We actually have a case in the book in which which we called every case in our office gets a title, you know, because it's easier to remember it that way. And you name all your clients, by the way. I have to remind people you've got these quirky names for your clients. <laughs> well, we we use pseudonyms, of course. Yes. So uh, to protect the guilty, as I say. Uh-huh. The, uh huh. The but but we do have a case which is known which we call the stolen sperm case, where uh, this fellow was a scientist and. He hooked up with a with a woman who was a uh, a publicist for um, the company that he was working with, and uh, although he was married, they had a steamy affair, and then it it, it uh, petered out, so to speak. And then a, f- a few years later, for reasons in the book which I won't get into, they met up together again when he was separated from his wife, and she had married and divorced. And they met at a convention, and they and they got back together, and it was as if they had never been apart. And now she was about 35, and he was about 55, and she wanted to get, she wanted to have a baby. And uh, so they attempted, uh, in the normal way, to have have um, a child. Didn't work. So then she convinced him to go to an in vitro fertilization place to get both of them checked. And it turned out that she was fine, but his his sperm was slow. So they decided to do an in vitro. Uh, and uh, in order to do that, both people have to sign the forms. Well, she went to the IVF place and signed his name, and she got pregnant with twins. And she, and of course, you got to be careful what you wish for. Unfortunately, they were born very early and had lots of trouble. And at that point, she decided she needed child support from him. And he said, "What are you talking about? What are you talking about?" Well, she claimed that she had a telephone conversation with him, and that he gave her permission to sign his name. That was her claim. And uh, we went to trial, and the judge believed her. Now, I wasn't there, but, you know, we... Uh, and, and then, of course, the guy was overseas. He wouldn't pay. Uh, ultimately, we finally got him to give some money into a trust that, to help out, so to speak, but not as much as she wanted. But, um, you know, whenever, whenever you do something like that, you have to think of the consequences. And yeah, and I, but most people, when you're talking about sex, and that's why it's so... In, it, it, kind of a must to read your book, but when you're talking about sex, love, and money, people don't think of the consequences. Usually they have this kind of an immediacy to their actions or their right. behavior. But you mentioned, and maybe either you, Gerald, or John, answer this question, how much uh, influence does a judge have? Because when you're going through, in divorce cases, it's very different than, say, like in a litigation, you have a, talk to us about that, because you don't have a jury 
who decides in these cases if well, they go to court. I mean, I'll just tell, tell quickly, and then Jerry can tell you the real truth. <laughs> so we get partial truth, then but real truth. Russian, I mean, from what I can see, it's Russian roulette. I mean, you just, you, you know, it really depends which judge you get. You can get a really hard-ass judge, or you can get a kind of mindless judge, or you can get an extremely considered kind of judge, and you don't know. Um, and it makes all the difference, and it is just that one person that decides your fate. It makes the whole thing very hairy. Now, over to you, Terry. Uh, well, oh, uh, you've summarized left. it exactly. I mean, the, the, every, the, there are judges uh, who were great divorce lawyers who go on the bench, and some really work out well from the lawyer's point of view, and some kind of are disappointing. There are judges who were clerks on the court and never practiced, uh, you know, on their own, and, and always were on the public payroll. And they go on the bench, and some of them are great judges, and others are really just, you know, you just wonder how the heck they got appointed. And then there was also the case, I mean, in the one that I mentioned about the, the hooker and the millionaire, that the hooker was in, in court, and the judge was giving her all sorts of dispensations, and Jerry had the strong suspicion that he had actually done her at some point, and that that was influencing his judgment. Yeah, so well, and if he goodness. had done that, if he had slept with her, then he should have, what, he recused himself recused at the, the very case. least. Yeah, right, exactly. yeah. I have so many more questions, but we have to say goodbye. We, listeners need to get out there, get the book, Sex, yeah, Love, and Money, exactly. Revenge and Ruin in the World of High Stakes Divorce. We've been talking to Gerald Nissenbaum, J.D., and John Sedgwick. Thanks so much for being on Thanks the show so this much, morning. Yeah, Is there a website really we can go to? Catherine, thank you. Okay, stay out of divorce court. I will. I'm never getting married again, as, as I said. Uh, you know, listening right. to you and reading your book, forget about it. Right. Yeah. It's called Prudence. Prudent. <laughs> and there's a exactly. Whole Did you mention a, whole... a website we can go to to buy the book or to learn well, more about you? It's Amazon.com or you know, any bookstore. Costco, I, I found out from my wife it's on sale in Costco at a price better than I can buy it from the publisher. Oh, terrific. Great. Yeah. All right. Good luck, guys. Thank anyway, you. Thanks so much, Catherine. So much. Good yeah. luck to yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. We are going to take a short break. And coming up next is Gretchen Rubin, The Happiness Project. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your team. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. 
Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. We're back. Thanks for joining us on, on the VoiceAmericaVariety.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and it's the Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is author Gretchen Rubin. She's author of The Happiness Project, or Why I Spent a Year Trying to Thing in the morning, clean my closets, fight right, read Aristotle, and generally have more fun. Gretchen is the author of several books, including the best-selling 40 Ways to Look at Winston Churchill and 40 Ways to Look at JFK. She began her career at clerking for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and then she realized she wanted to be a, re- a writer. She was raised in Kansas, now lives in New York City, with her husband and two daughters, and hence the Happiness Project. Um, it, well, as, as, uh, it really does come at a perfect moment because everybody does want to be happy as the economic downturn kind of pushes people, pushes us to try and foster great happiness uh, within the lives that we live right now. But I think a lot of us are struggling with that. So in the book, we learn, first of all, how... Um, Gretchen was able to achieve her own unique form of happiness, and we're all different, but uh, I'm going to let her tell the story. Welcome to the show, Gretchen. Nice to have you on. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Uh, fascinating book. I mean, you have created kind of uh, a, really a phenomenon here with your book and your, and your blog and your website. So talk to us. What was the motivation for writing this book? When did, when did, how did it all come about? Well, it started in a very inconspicuous moment in my life. I was on a city bus, um, and we were moving very slowly because it was pouring rain. So I had one of those rare moments for reflection when I could step back from the everyday tumult of my life and say, you know, what do I really want from life anyway? And I thought, well, I, I want to be happy. But I realized at that moment that I never spent any time thinking about whether I was happy or how I could be happier, even though I was telling myself that this is my, my most important um, priority in my life. And at that moment, I decided I would have a happiness project. And the very next day, I went out and got a huge pile of books about happiness and started researching, 
you know, what, what, what do people say works? What makes you happier? And I wanted to put those to a test in my own life. And so you did. You read all of these books. You did all your research. But one of the things, I guess, is that you... Um, that I get from your book is that you you really you didn't want to turn your life upside down. I mean, you didn't want you know you mentioned eat, pray, love. I guess, you know you didn't necessarily have to go to India or Indonesia, but you wanted to be able to do it at home where you were in your own environment. Exactly, that's exactly right. I didn't I didn't want to turn my life upside down, and and I couldn't have even if I'd wanted to, but I didn't want to. I wanted to see within the within the structure of my ordinary life. I mean, could I be happier just in my, in my daily routine? Um, could, I, could I change my life without changing my life? That's what, what I set out to find out. Because I love, I love the radical transformations. I love, you know, when people do these huge, big, transformative things. Um, but that, that wasn't the kind of thing that appealed to me, and it wasn't the kind of thing that was going to work for my happiness. And I think that probably this is maybe one of the reasons why your whole concept is taken off, because we don't necessarily all have those radical things, you know, a terrible divorce or, yeah. you know, a crisis or something horrible happening. On, you know. So yours is kind of like, here you are, handsome husband, two beautiful daughters, you're a lawyer, you, you know, great middle, upper middle class lifestyle. Why would you want to change but most of us do, and somehow we're not happy with that. So. Well, the, the, the thing is, is I felt pretty happy when I started, and I think one of the things I wanted to get from my happiness project and something that I feel that I can see that really resonates with other people is this idea that you really do have everything that you need to be happy, and yet it's so easy to be distracted by petty irritation or minor annoyances and to focus on the things that aren't working or that are not exactly the way you would want them to be instead of really thinking about, how, how happy you are and how you really do have the essential elements that you need for happiness. And one of the things I wanted to ask of myself in my happiness project was to really pay attention to that and, and, and revel in that and appreciate my ordinary day. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people feel where they're, where they're like, I really need to expect more of myself to really focus on, on the essential elements of happiness that I have right now. Because what happens to a lot of people is only when something bad happens that they realize, oh, my gosh, how happy I was before such and such happened. And really then they to... feel they have to do some kind of a transformation, you know, transform themselves and their lives and, you know, do a complete turnaround, which is not what this book is about. It's, uh, it's interesting because you, you just you do. You take kind of the everyday things that we do in our lives, and, and well, I'm, I'm going to let you tell us because I, I think it's fascinating the way in which you do it. I mean, you take it, it's like hand-holding, how to it, it's improve our lives, put joy into our lives. And we're happy, but we're joyous. And we're also accomplishing things, but we don't have to do this, you know, great, great leaps or take great leaps of faith in order to accomplish that. Yeah, I mean, right, I'm much more of the, instead of saying train for a marathon, I'm much more like go for a 10-minute walk at lunch every day. You know, yeah. like keep it very manageable, keep it realistic. And then, and then when you see that you're making small steps, sometimes small steps help you make bigger steps or else even you're get, getting something done, even if you're not, you, you know, sometimes people are so ambitious that they end up giving up. Um, giving up on a goal altogether because it's just not realistic. And the, the way that I tried to do it to make it manageable for myself was I, I divided every month, I gave every month a theme for a year, and I would think about one particular a aspect of my life that I needed to work on, whether it was work or it was energy or it was marriage or it was fun or friends or whatever. And I would try to think about very specific resolutions that I could keep that would help me be happier in that area of my life. And 
All right, give us an example. Take one of those months, one of those themes. What did you do for you? And granted, it's going to be different for yeah. everybody. Right, it would be different for everybody. Um, well, what, the first month for January, I picked I picked something very concrete, um, not a big transcendent happiness idea, but a very immediate idea, which was energy. Because I felt like, well, if I have more energy, then everything in my life will be easier. It'll be easier to quit nagging my husband. It'll be easier to imitate a spiritual master if I have more energy. So I, the things I did were the very obvious things. I got more sleep. I got a little bit more exercise. I cleaned up my clutter. I did got crossed a lot of nagging tasks off my to-do list because it turns out that those undone tasks drain you of energy. And so just by doing these little things, I managed to give myself a lot more mental and physical energy. And it turns out, you know, these things, though they're not very, they don't seem like they're a particularly big deal, do really give you a happiness boost. So that was one of the things I did in January. Started. All right, so you did that in January, Gretchen, but then you, you carry that over, yeah. the energy thing, into February as well, yeah. right? Yes, it was all cumulative. So by December and now, even to this day, I'm doing all my resolutions all the time. <laughs> it's a lot uh, of resolutions. <laughs> My question is, what did your family think about it? I know you, when you decided to do this, you called your sister, and she said, well, she said, you're crazy, but you're not crazy. So you got support for, for beginning this project, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, the thing that was interesting about my family is I didn't really talk to them about it too much. I didn't want my daughters to feel self-conscious or like I was, um, you know, changing my parenting style. You know, I wanted – and, and so I didn't talk to them about it, and they're very young. And then my husband just – he, 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 this isn't the kind of thing, he would not go about it in this way. This is not the kind of thing that would appeal to him. He didn't, he didn't want to, you know, hear about all my resolutions or, or to discuss with me how I was going to do these things to, to um, work on our, our relationship. And, but the thing that I, that I noticed is that, and, it, and one of the problems with the Happiness Project is that you often think, you know, I would just be happy if other people would behave properly. Um, and you think, if they would change, then I would be happy, so why don't they just clean up their act? But you can't affect what other people do. But what I found is that when I change, my relationships change. And so if I did my happiness project, it didn't matter if my husband wasn't doing his happiness project because when I felt calmer and more cheerful and more tender and more romantic, then he responded to that. And so you really can just focus on yourself because real, really that's the only thing, that's the only, the only person you can change is yourself. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's so true. I mean, I think that it's, it's if you're doing a dance with your husband and you, you know, change the music or change the tune or change the dance, then the other person, your partner, does the same thing. You can't do the same dance unless right. both of you are doing it together. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So if you're kind of upping this, doing a better, you, you're making the change, he'll respond to you in kind. Husband, friend, family, anybody, as you say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. All right. So you didn't make such a big uh, statement, I guess, to the family. You just went ahead and did your project. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a scientist friend of mine was very concerned that I should have more uh, like data, and he said his suggestion was that I have my husband rate me on a one to ten scale of happiness every night. And I, I thought I was said to him, "That is not going to make happiness in my house. There's no way my husband's going to sit around and talk to me about where I am on one to ten on a happiness scale every evening." So um, yeah, I that didn't, I didn't, misery. I didn't drag him into I mean, the project very much. <laughs> that is not the thing. You're so right. Good thing. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you didn't do that. <laughs> I don't think that would have helped your project at all. No, no, no. Just another, just another thing to nag about, right? Exactly. So, okay. So you have um, 
what you call a resolutions chart. Is that what we call it? Yeah. A monthly resolutions chart that you mapped out that, that, uh, that one can map out for themselves. Yes, I, I, I took this idea from Benjamin Franklin, who had a virtues chart where he had 13 virtues that he was trying to inculcate in himself uh, against the days of the week. And he would just score himself every night about whether he had observed silence or temperance or frugality or the, the, the virtues that he wanted to acquire. And so I have all my resolutions against the days of the month. And every night I review them and score myself and say, did I keep my resolution? Did I, did I break my resolution? And, um, you know, thousands of people have emailed me through my blog to get a copy because they can see mine and get an idea of the kind of things that I did. And then there's a template so that they can create their own. Because having a way to hold yourself accountable is really, really important for these resolutions and if you want to make this kind of change. Because otherwise, I think by mid-February, something like 80% of New Year's resolutions have been abandoned. If you don't have a way to hold yourself accountable, it's very easy to have even the best um, intentions just kind of drift out. You know, you just you just sort of forget about it and you don't keep up with it. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true, and I think that's really true for all of us. You, you really do. You have to. Uh, uh, it's very easy for people to say, "Well, okay, I did it for a while, and I'll, yeah. I'll try it again in a month, and, and and just let go of the whole project." You're so right. So um, you do have to be accountable. But you've got what thirty thousand people now. Uh, and probably more as as we're talking, who are a part of this happiness project online. Yes, I have a lot of people um, who who read my blog. I have a newsletter. I have a 2010 Happiness Challenge. Where I want to talk about that when we come back. We just have to take a short break because you have so much to talk about. The Happiness Project, Gretchen Rubin. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Don't go away. Gretchen and I will be back in a minute. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Listen for MD Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel. That's Muscular Development Radio. Every Monday, your host, Sean Ray, will take you inside the world of bodybuilding and health and fitness. The show will feature Hall of Fame bodybuilders, trainers, judges, and the future champions of tomorrow. Plus, you'll be invited to participate in our call-in Ask the Pros feature. And our nutritional spotlight will feature products that can help you achieve your fitness goals. MD Radio is broadcast live Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're 
listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you would like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on The Catherine Zox Show, voiceamericavariety.com. Again, thanks for joining us. Joining us this morning, um, I, we're talking to Gretchen Rubin. She's author of The Happiness Project, or Why I Spent a Year Trying to Sing in the Morning, Clean My Closets, Fight Right, Read Aristotle, and Generally Have More Fun. Uh, Gretchen, we were talk- you know, before we took the break, you, we mentioned you know, getting people jump-started so that they can become de- involved in the project. You've got 30,000 people now reading your blog. That's, uh, my, RS- that's my RSS feed, actually. That oh, many more okay. many more people read the blog than that. <laughs> you've got well, that's your monthly newsletter. Okay, yeah. All right. So tell us because you've got you've got the the monthly newsletter blog. Uh, you've got all kind besides the book. There's a lot of stuff that we can um, sort of attach ourselves to so that we can join the happiness project. Let's go through. So tell us about that. Tell us about the uh, well the website. Well, yes, I have a I have a website I, because of the blog uh, because of the book I started a blog as I was writing the book um, as a way to test novelty and challenge and, and that's also called the Happiness Project just www.happiness-project.com and that's where I write um, I write every day about some idea in happiness and on Friday I suggest resolutions for your consideration so maybe uh, an idea for you to think about in your own life a resolution that i'm that i'm trying or that i've that i thought sounded like something that um would help boost happiness and i also have um I'm, I'm running this thing called the 2010 Happiness Challenge, which you can sign up to join because studies show that if you actually sign up, you're more likely to stick to something. There's something about actually signing your name that makes you hold yourself accountable. So Make, Writing it down makes yeah. it real. Yes, and sort of pledging yourself um, makes people more uh, persistent. So, um, or and the, or I know this kind of analogy to that is when you write to, if you have a grocery list, when you go to the grocery store, you tend to stick to your grocery list. If you don't have a list, yeah. you're kind of all over the place. Buying yeah, a lot stuff of drive by shopping. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. Writing things down is a good. It's always a good discipline. Um, and with this, every week, I, I have a theme for every month. So, like for example, the theme of February is love because of Valentine's Day and all that. And um, every week, I have I offer a resolution and do a video where I talk for just one or two minutes about a particular resolution and why I think, in my experience, that resolution helped me um, become happier. And so a lot of people follow along and watch those videos and, and, and are doing happiness projects for themselves. Okay, Gretchen, give us an example of one of those bi- videos. One. Well, one, of the, one of the ones is um, give proofs of love, for example, because we think people only see how we behave. They don't see what's in our mind. So even if in, in, in your, even in, in, deep down you feel a lot of love for your husband or your wife or your partner or your sweetheart, that person is only going to see the way that you behave. And so by making, and a lot of times with that person, is the person that you take for granted and kind of show the least consideration for um, than you do to other people in your life. I realized that about my husband. Here he is, you know, the love of my life, and yet I was much more considerate of guests who would come over to our house or, um, you know, I was taking him for granted. And by giving proofs of love, you're just looking for those little, little thoughtful gestures, little ways to show love that... Um, 
that just make it more out in the open. And, and also by acting in a loving way, you make yourself feel in a loving way. That's a psychological principle. The way that we act very much influences our emotional state. So if you act in a loving way, you feel in a loving way. Another a fun resolution to keep is kiss more, touch more, hug more. Studies show that people who hug and touch more are happier. And I haven't seen a study about kissing, but I think if you kiss more, you're going to be happier too, assuming that you're all doing this in an appropriate way. Um, but just making the effort to make sure that you're touching everybody in your house in an affectionate way every day really boosts happiness, really does give you a greater sense of connection. And so I, so I think about simple, that with my children, too. And it doesn't too. cost anything, and you don't have to take a major trip to the, uh, to the, to the Caribbean in order to achieve that. You can, uh, you, you, know, you can be watching the Olympics and, start, and hold hands or watching television but or... That's a perfect example of just like just making just having that thought like let me just do this or you're just walking by somebody in the kitchen and you just rub their back or with my daughters when we're going down in the elevator to school I try to make to like stroke their hair just to have that little moment it doesn't take any extra time it doesn't take any extra energy all you sort of do is have to have the thought in your head that you want to do it and the thing is over time it really does. Um, it really does change the atmosphere in your house. I, yeah, it changes I, the it changes the emotional atmosphere. Don't you think that it's easier, or in, in your experience, somehow, particularly, uh, I'll say mothers, but maybe there are gender differences. I don't know, but you know, you mush with your kids, you hold them, you kiss, touch them, kiss them, lick them, whatever that you know, whatever you know, babies. But somehow, with your partner, or your spouse, we seem as the law, what happens that people tend to get more and more distance in terms of the touching. You know, we can't be together till the kids go to sleep and we get in bed at night. Well, you know that's not true. You can be, you know, having that intimate touching as you're talking about any time during the day, which could be just holding hands. We tend to do it with our children, but we don't do it with our partners. I think that's exactly right, and, 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 and just speaking for myself, just making that effort. I mean, and even maybe every time you touch your children, have the thought, okay, now i gotta got to think about my partner, or, or, or just to try to bring that into other parts of your, um, and probably we t- we're more touchy-feely with younger children than older children, and yes. older children wanted to. Um, it just, it just, and this is true, like even of strangers, they've done studies of what's called subliminal touching, which is when people have a fleeting touch that they don't even consciously realize, like if you're, and it, it increases positive feelings among people. So for example, they've shown that if a waiter fleetingly touches a customer, even though most people would say, ooh, I don't like it when people touch me, they, they have, they, they tip more. There's something about this physical connection, you know, strangers shake hands. There's something about having a physical connection with people that boosts positive mood. And I think if you really are giving that full-on, you know, hug, kiss, touch to somebody in your family, it really does make you feel more affectionate. It really does make you feel like you're more in touch with people because you literally are in touch with them. Yeah, you are. You're in touch and touching. Yeah. Have, have there ever been any, because you, you have all of these, the different kinds of themes, have there ever been any themes where, or, you know, you're, you, you present them to your, to your audience, to your listeners, to your um, subscribers, that, that, that you get feedback, any negative feedback, or we'll say, oh, Gretchen, this doesn't work, maybe we should try something else, or, you know, something that you presented for yourself. And has that happened in, the, in, the, in this whole process? You, you know what? It's usually exactly the opposite. I will write about something thinking, okay, no one is going to understand this. This is me. This is so idiosyncratic. 
this is so particular to me. No one in the world is going to know what I'm talking about. And really, I should write about something else because I'm just wasting everybody's time. <laughs> and then I will get a flood of people saying, oh, my gosh, I never, like, one of the things I wrote about is I have this thing, one of my resolutions is to spend out. And that has many, many meanings. But one of the meanings is I should use up what I have and not save things. Like, I will do, I, will, I literally did this. I bought a bunch of new underwear because I had this, like, old underwear that really needed to be gotten rid of. But then I felt this urge to save my new underwear and kind of keep it wrapped up on the shelf. And, and I really had to force myself to use it. I wrote about that, and all these people said, I have exactly the same problem. I save my good china. I save my, I, you know, I won't, I don't use things up. I won't, I won't, um, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't, I can't, I, I kind of can't let go of things or, or, or put can't them give it use. away. Can't, yeah. Can't get them, not, or, or just sort of can't even use them even for their kind of appropriate use. Like you buy the new toothbrush, but then you keep using the old toothbrush even though the bristles are falling out. And so many people were like, I have that same issue. Like, what's up with that? And it, and so usually I find that even when I think that no one's going to understand it, a lot of people then, um, speak up and say that actually um, they know exactly what I'm talking about. So that's and so glad that you verbalized it and made it real. Right, because they had the same thing too. They thought you know nobody else had 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 this. An interesting thing is, um, I think in our culture we assume that everybody loves to buy and loves to shop, and that this is something that everyone finds enjoyment in. But actually, that's not true. I hate shopping. I hate buying. And um, and that presents its own problems. It's very inconvenient to be that kind of person. And I wrote about being an underbuyer, like somebody who doesn't <laughs> buy the things that she ought to buy. And so many people said, oh, I'm an underbuyer too. And, you know, it's February before I buy my mittens, and I never buy toilet paper until I've been out, and, you know, all these things. And, and um well, I, and boy, am I, I am identifying with that. I am, I do not like to buy. It doesn't make me feel good. It's no. just as you're describing. No, I, 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 I yeah. No, and, and you sort of feel like you're the only one because there's this perception in our culture that everybody gets a lot of fun out of it. Um, but I will go to great lengths not to buy things or then to buy as little as possible, yeah. which then you end up having to buy more, like contact lens solution, which I use twice a day every day of my life. I finally said to myself, why am I buying this one bottle at a time? Because then I just have to keep going back to the drugstore. You know, buy a lot at once. But I sort of hate buying, so I try to minimize it. Anyway, there's a whole psychology that goes with underbuying that if once you're conscious of it and you realize how it's interfe- interfering with not a major aspect of your happiness, but certainly a real um, minor theme in your happiness, then you can sort of work around it and say to yourself, well, I don't like to buy but I know that eventually I'm going to need those mittens, and I'm going to be a lot happier if I buy the mittens now when the stores are full of mittens and my hands are cold now than waiting three months and suffering and waiting, and then there won't be any left in the stores when I finally get a, force myself to buy it. But I think, um, Gretchen, it's not such a small thing. I think you've brought up an enormous thing because people complain about they don't, you know, they, there's not enough time to, to accomplish everything they need to accomplish and multitasking and all these responsibilities. But if you did what you said, like, well, you're talking about the contact lens cleaner, but what about the things, you know, with toilet paper or paper that, you, you know, paper towels or the things that you always use on an ongoing basis? Why not buy them in bulk and put them in your garage or your basement or wherever you can? Then you're not spending time, precious time running back and forth to the grocery store to buy this stuff every other day. I mean, well, I think that's yeah, a big issue. And that's issue. the thing about the happiness project is I realize, like, you really have to think very hard about your own nature and what's interfering with your happiness because it's only when you say to yourself, well, I keep running out of paper towels and then I buy one roll of paper towels and then I run out again and it's very annoying, but 
and I don't like to buy things, and I feel like I don't want to buy 10 rolls of, of paper towels, but I realize if I do, I mean, you kind of go, make yourself to go through that, that thought process, then you, you can make a change. It's not a hard change to make, but you sort of have to take yourself through that thought process. Because yeah. um, otherwise you might not ever, ever even really notice that that's why you're in this pattern, because you just don't think about it. Yeah, and then you'll spend the time complaining about how often <laughs> you have to go to the store and yeah. buy all this stuff, and I you don't want day. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so this is great. I mean, this, you are hitting on some, as you say, they're unique to you, but really they're not unique to you. I mean, what would you say was really, is there anything that has been really unique to you, or the unique part is the way in which you go about uh, achieving the happiness? You know what I mean? The things that you're describing are just things that I think all of us need to address. Well, this is the thing. You know, happiness is is too big to to find something original to say. All the big ideas have been found long ago because the greatest minds in history have thought about happiness and and um, and so there's no there's no new wisdom. So I think and I and I think can you all... stick with us a little longer? We got to go to one more break. Okay. Sure. Great. Uh, We're going to take a short break right now. It's the Happiness Project, or why I spend a year trying to sing in the morning, clean my clothes, which would fight right, read Aristotle, and generally have more fun. Gretchen Rubin. I'm Catherine Zox, uh, VoiceAmericaVariety.com. We'll be back in a minute. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Total career success. What does it mean to you? Voice America presents a radio program dedicated to help you achieve your career goal. Even in times of economic uncertainty, you can achieve your financial goals. Whether you're a college grad, new in the working environment, or a top-level executive, you will benefit from the practical and proven advice on job search and career advancement. Join Ken and Cheryl Dawson every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, for Total Career Success on Voice America. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. It's the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. And I'm talking to Gretchen Rubin, who's author of The Happiness Project. Um, Gretchen, this is something you don't usually mention in the same, I don't know, the same sentence as happiness, but you do say that um, 
One of the things that you recommend as part of being happier is enjoying the fun of failure. So I want you to explain what that means, because it seems that who can enjoy the fun of failure? How can that be a positive thing? Well, one of the things I realize is for me is for a lot of people who are sort of driven or really want to do well, get that gold star on their homework, um, it's no fun to fail. You don't want to fail. But if you're not willing to fail, then you're not willing to push yourself and, and to try things where you might not succeed. And so as a way to try to encourage myself to ch- challenge myself more, to try more, to risk more, I... I kept repeating this idea that I would enjoy the fun of failure because I wanted to embrace failure as fun, as part of the process, as something that wasn't a surprise, as something that was just part of what I had to accept if I wanted to um, try new things and and, uh, push myself harder. And it was interesting because on my blog, somebody posted, I don't think you should frame this as failure. I think you should frame it in a more positive way and not tell yourself that you're failing. And at first I thought that sounded like a good idea, but then I realized, no, part of what I want to do is I really want to say, this failed. I failed here. This did not work. And, and, not, be, and not be upset by that. I right, didn't so want to have to... For you? You're ambitious. You're competitive. As you say in your book, editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Review. I mean, who could be more impressed with that? I mean, so what did you fail at? Oh, I failed at a lot of things. I mean, I applied for things that I didn't get. I tried to write a column. It didn't, you know, it looked like it was going to work. It didn't work. Um, I tried to do some things on my blog that failed. You know, I had, uh, on my blog, I had a lot of things that I, I would fail a couple of times, and then f- finally I would succeed. And that's when fun, the fun of failure really works, is when you fail and you fail, but you keep failing until you figure it out. And then you get a big burst of happiness. Um, but some of the things I tried, um, you know, I always am trying to connect with the community. I tried things that I thought, well, maybe people will think this is cool. And people didn't. Uh, it didn't work. But that's okay. You know, it's just you have to try in order to fail. Um, and uh, you have to attempt. And an attempt always carries with it the risk that it's not going to work. Um, but by trying to k- couch it as fun, um, I tried to make myself uh, not, not shy away from it or not be scared of it or, or, or not willing to risk it. Yeah, well, then that's really, uh, so in order to, so I guess in order to get ahead and kind of reap the benefits of it, you, of, of the happiness and to be able to feel, I guess, successful, then yes, you do, you have to take a risk. Is that what we're talking about? Right. Well, and also one of the things that um, it, there's like success in terms of that kind of thing, but also studies show that people who do who who do things that are novel and challenging are happier than people who don't. So people who travel to new places or or or, or um, try new things are happier than people who don't. But one of the reasons that people don't like to try new things is because often it can be frustrating. You can feel stupid. You can feel intimidated, and you can fail. Um, and sometimes, Gretchen, I think for some people. It's terrifying. I mean, I have, a, I, here's, I have an example of a friend who it's very difficult to, for her to make any changes, even small changes. And she told me she had her mother's old antique desk with all of the stuff that was, her mother died, with all of the things that were, on, that were on her mother's desk are still there. And even though it doesn't fit her living room and her decor, she can't move it. She's afraid to, take it, to, to, to make the change, to get rid of it. So I suggested, tell me if this is a good idea, but I said, why don't you just at least start with, Take those things that are on the desk, put them away. You don't have to throw them away, but keep them keep them for a week off the desk and, and see how you feel about it. And then maybe then you'll be able to take another leap, maybe even get rid of the desk. But exactly. all things like that can make a huge difference and, and will get you kind of on the road to being able to make other changes. Exactly. And try, instead of trying to make one step that feels 
too intimidating to tackle, you break it into small, small steps so that you feel like you can just inch towards it. Um, that's a great. It's a great way to to do something that feels overwhelming is to just take it little inch by inch. Yeah, and what you say, of course, for one some for some people. What's overwhelming for one person isn't necessarily, obviously, overwhelming for somebody else, right? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. So you also talk about asking for help. Yeah, why is this so hard? It's so hard. I don't know. It's hard for me to ask for help. I think it's hard for women to ask for help. I think it's hard for men to ask for help. I do, too. But, you know, I think in certain ways women think they they can do it all. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it's part of the human condition. I, I think I don't know why it's so hard to ask for help, but so often when I when I find myself paralyzed, like there's something that I want to do but I can't move forward, if I say to myself, "What's the problem here?" I think there's something that I don't know or I don't know how to do or I need somebody to give me some guidance or give me some insight or explain something to me or show me how to do something. And then once I allow myself to say, "Wow, I really need some help," then I'm in, and I force myself to reach out for it. I, I'm always amazed by how easy it is, usually, um, or, or, or and how and how happy people are um, to be helpful when they can be helpful. Um, so yeah, I don't know why this is something that's so hard to do, but it is. Yeah, I think maybe it's a cultural thing. I, I you know, I can. I guess there are all kinds of. Uh, sociological reasons or psychological reasons we can look to, but I think that is a problem, an issue that we think we can, you think one thinks they can handle everything, and I do think, well, I'll speak just in terms of women, if you have children and a job and a partner and you're trying to juggle everything, you feel like, well, I should be able to do all of this when in, in reality, you know, you can't, and uh, as you say, if you allow other people to help you, they feel happy, that's contagious too. I mean, they feel good about themselves by being able to help you. No, in fact, one of the things, when they look at why, why things like belonging to a church or belonging to a group makes, tends to make people happier, one of the things that they've realized is that people think, well, if you're doing something like that, you're going to get the support that you need, and that's going to make you happier. And that's definitely true. But it's also true that giving support, helping other people, being part of a network that supports other people also makes people happier. So, so right, when you're asking for help, other people, you're giving, you, you know, that people might very much welcome the chance to pitch in, and they just need, um, they just need you to tell them um, what it is that you need and how, and how they can be helpful. I have, I'm really lucky. I live right around the corner from my in-laws, and I mean right around the corner, and they're great at babysitting. And often I will say, if you could do this, it would really help me out. And if they can, they will. But I need to be very specific with them. If I just sort of said, like, well, if you could, you know, if I didn't ask, they wouldn't do it, you know. So you have to really articulate what you need and think about it and uh, in, a, in a way that's realistic for other people so that they, can, they feel like they can be helpful um, in a realistic way. I think that, that's, a, that's great advice. And, I, you know, you talk about your in-laws, and that particularly is true of, of your spouse or your partner, who you sometimes assume uh, – knows that you want help, and they don't unless you say it, and you have to ask for it, and asking for it is really important. Got a minute left to go. It's great. I really enjoyed talking to you this morning, and I love the book, The Happiness Project. Uh, listeners, you can buy it at bookstores everywhere. It's online, and I just want to mention The Happiness Project, uh, www.happiness-project.com, right? Yep. That's the website. Read your blog. Yes. Gretchen, thank you so much for, uh, for being here. Well, thank you so much. Yep. 
Great. Have a good day. Have a happy week. <laughs> you too. Okay. I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to me, Catherine Sox, on VoiceAmericaVariety.com with Gretchen Rubin, The Happiness Project. Hope you had a great morning, and we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.